Praise God. I, and I don't know if this is the right way to put this, but boy, you all were jamming. Yeah. <laughs> Praise God. Lift your hearts to the Lord. Father, we just thank you so much for your love and your grace and your presence in this place. We thank you for your word, the word that we're about to hear and receive. We pray that our hearts will be pliable and that the truth, God, that we hear will be able to apply in everyday life. Bless the pastor and give him strength in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you. I have, I have had an interesting week this week. Um, Thursday morning, those of you that live in New City, the sirens went off about 5 in the morning, uh, 5, 5.30, right? So, so, and also, we have these little alerts on our phones, so the alerts go off. So Rebecca and I shoot out of bed, and normally, I'm not really big on the alarms. I'm kind of like, well, you know, they're probably a little overly cautious or whatever. But I looked on my phone, and it said there was a warning. So somebody had actually seen a tornado in uh, University City. So we scooped up the boys, ran down to the basement, uh, and I put out a blanket on the floor. Our basement's kind of like a concrete bunker. It's not, it's not a, you know, plush, you know, cool environment. Um, I want to build a man cave down there, but that's, that's down the road. So I, I spread a blanket out onto the floor, and I'm trying to make the most of a bad situation. So I turn to my boys, and I'm like, you guys, this is kind of like, we're kind of like camping down. It's like a camping thing. It's kind of fun. It's like we're camping down here, right? And Lincoln is sort of half asleep. He's, he's got his eyes closed. He's got his head on the pillow. He says, yeah, Dad, it's kind of like camping, except we don't have a tent. We don't have a fire. We don't have any marshmallows, and we're in our basement. And I go, yeah, you're right, son. Yeah, thanks for the reality check. Um, and then the next day, I, maybe the excitement of the tornado, uh, my wife, who is very close to having a baby, uh, thought that she was having a baby. And so we jumped in the car and we rushed down to the hospital. And I'm texting every, you know, our family. And I'm like, it's time. It's baby time. It's, it's go time. Here we go. About an hour later, the doctor says, you know, um, uh, it doesn't look like today's going to be your day. You guys can just go ahead and pack up and uh, head on home. So, so we've had, <laughs> we've had an exciting week. Um, and this season for me generally the Easter season and leading up to Easter is, is a wonderful and exciting time. I mean, it's a time where things are warming up. The weather is looking nice. You can get outside. Uh, it's a time of new life. It's a time of celebration. Uh, but, and, and, and to be honest, it's, it's, it's a hopeful time for me. It was right before Easter a few years ago, nine years ago, that I became a believer. And, and so leading into Easter is an exciting time for me. But... There's some stuff that you got to go through before you can really talk about Easter. All right. There's some you don't get the resurrection without the crucifixion. You don't get new life without the death of the old. You don't get Easter without Good Friday. And so today we're starting a series, a three part series today, next Sunday and the following Sunday called Three Days That Changed Everything. Three days that changed everything. And today we're going to talk about the Friday, the Friday before the Sunday. Uh, and the Friday is a dark day. The Friday was the darkest day. And I, I don't know about you, but I think all of us have had a dark day in our life. And in fact, all of us have probably had the darkest day that we know. And we can look back and we can say, 
I've had that darkest day. And I'm not talking about when your March Madness bracket got busted and you didn't get the billion dollars from Warren Buffett. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a real dark day. Uh, we've all had these, and I don't know what yours is. Maybe it was the day that you lost a loved one, maybe a friend or a family member uh, passed away. Maybe it was the day that you got a divorce. Maybe it was the day you dropped out of school. Maybe it was the day that an addiction caught up to you. Maybe it was the day that you hit rock bottom. Maybe it was the day that you learned that you weren't who you thought you were. There was something about you that you didn't even realize uh, you could do. We've all had a darkest day that we would rather forget. We would like to scrub that day from our memory. We'd like to, to blot that day out of our history. My darkest day was the day that we buried my dad several years ago. He was 62 years old. He was struck down in the prime of his youth, in the prime of his strength. He was a pastor. He was in the prime of his ministry. He was uh, pastoring a church that he had planted down in Tempe, Arizona, and it was growing quickly, and he was excited about life, and things were moving quickly. Um, but in the years prior to his death, he and I had become somewhat estranged because I had chosen to go down a different path. I was walking down the path of the prodigal. I was walking down a path of rebellion and anger uh, and distance from God. And my heart had been cold and calloused towards God and, and, and his things and his people. And so there was a rift between my dad and I. But as his death approached, I began to experience a really deep sense of regret, a deep sense of remorse. I looked at his life and I thought, you know, here's a guy who has dedicated his life solely to the purpose of serving other people. And then I looked at my life, and up to that point, I had lived my life solely dedicated to serving myself. And I realized that there had grown a great chasm between us, and I began to regret that. In the months before he died, fortunately, we had an opportunity to, to mend that gap. Um, I was able to spend hours with him at his bedside at, ho at the hospital and then at hospice care, and we told a lot of stupid jokes, and we went through some old memories, and we, we kind of rebuilt uh, the, the love and the relationship that we had for each other. But as his life was draining from him, my heart was breaking. And somehow or other, after he passed, I managed to pull it together enough to deliver the eulogy at his funeral. But I just remember reviewing it before the funeral and trying to make sure that it was what I wanted to say, but the, the grief and the, the remorse and the anguish of, of his loss was sort of pounding in my ears, and I, and I, I could barely even hear the, the well wishes of loved ones as they tried to comfort me during this darkest day. We've all had a darkest day. And in Jerusalem, in 33 AD, on a Friday, it was the darkest day that history had ever known. Hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of pilgrims had descended upon Jerusalem on that day because it was Passover. And Passover was this joyful holiday. It's this celebration uh, where the Jews celebrated God breaking the, the chains of slavery and, and releasing them and freeing them and emancipating them from the, the, the bondage of slavery down in Egypt. And so 1,500 years earlier, Pharaoh in Egypt had been a very cruel taskmaster, taskmaster, and he had uh, subjected the children of Israelites 
uh, the children of Israel to torture and abuse. He had even uh, issued an edict at one point where he said the firstborn of every Israelite family must die. And so this cruelty was going on for, for years and years until God sent Moses down to Egypt. And God sent Moses to command Pharaoh to let my people go, to release my people from the bonds of slavery. But Pharaoh's heart was hard. He wouldn't do it. God sent plague after plague to try to soften Pharaoh's heart, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't soften his heart. And so finally God visited a, a, a plague upon Egypt that was so great, that was so horrifying that, that Pharaoh couldn't resist. He, he sent an angel of death to strike down the firstborn of every family in Egypt. But the one thing that he told the children of Israel was this. He said, if you will slaughter an innocent lamb and you will take the blood from that lamb and you will sprinkle that on the doorposts of your home, the angel of death will pass over your home and your firstborn child will live. And so the children of Israel, the Israelite slaves, got innocent lambs, slaughtered the lambs, and put the blood on their doorpost. And when the angel of death came, he passed over their homes. They were saved by the blood of an innocent lamb. But those who did not put the blood on their doorposts, their firstborn died. And so Pharaoh, there, there was a great, great mourning the, the next day when people woke up and, and, the Isra- and the Egyptians found that their firstborn had been killed. And so it was, it was in that grief that Pharaoh finally said, okay, I will free the Israelites. And so the the children of Israel were were released to go find the the land of Canaan uh, and to to pass into freedom. And so for 1,500 years up to that point, the point of Jesus' life, every year the Jews would celebrate Passover. And they would celebrate liberty from slavery by the blood of a lamb. But it was not a day of celebration for Jesus and his followers this Passover. Because the night before Passover, on Thursday night, Jesus and his disciples had come together. They were sitting together eating supper, and the disciples were tired. The disciples had been out for for three years now, ministering and preaching and healing the sick and bringing joy and strength and courage to the broken. And Jesus was there with them having dinner, and he looked across his the faces of his men and he saw that they were tired they were weary and so and he also knew what was about to happen he knew the bone chilling fear that they were about to experience the next day he knew the the shock that they were about to absorb the next day and so out of compassion in a, in a moment of spontaneous love and humility Jesus got down on his knees at this supper and he washed the feet the tired, worn, dirty feet of his men. One of the men whose feet he washed was a man named Judas. Judas was the chief financial officer of Jesus's ministry. He's the guy that carried the purse. He was the treasurer. And Judas, we don't know why exactly, but we know that Judas, somewhere in his heart, cynicism and bitterness and anger and frustration had festered. And so after Jesus washed Judas's feet, Judas slipped out of the dinner and went and did something that caused him 
the greatest, the most unfathomable depths of remorse imaginable. Because Jesus was wildly popular with the masses, but he was despised, bitterly despised and envied by the preachers and the priests of his day, by the ruling elite of his day. And Judas knew this. And so Judas went to the high priests and he sort of slipped into their presence and said, I know where Jesus is tonight. If you want him, if you want to capture him, I can lead you to him tonight. I know where he's at. Follow me. And, it, and I'll just take 30 pieces of silver for my trouble. And so that's what he did. Jesus was praying after supper in the garden of Gethsemane. And Gethsemane means the place of the pressing. It's, it's an oil. It's where they, they, they pressed olive oils, uh, olives to, to make oil. And Jesus was praying so deeply that the Bible says that sweat was pouring from his brow as if it was blood from a wound. He, he was being pressed by the knowledge of what was about to happen to him. And Judas entered the garden accompanied by soldiers. They had torches. They had swords. They had clubs. The moonlight is glinting off of their armor. And they come into the garden, and Jesus sees Judas. And Jesus says to Judas, he says, why are you here, my friend? Why are you here? Of course, he knew why he was there. Judas says, hello, Rabbi, and Judas goes up to Jesus and gives him a customary kiss on the cheek, and this was the secret signal to the soldiers that it was time to move in, and this was the man that they were supposed to seize, and we don't know why he did it. We don't know why Judas sinned in this way. Why do any of us sin? Why is there sin, right? I mean, we, we read about the shooting in Fort Hood and we can only say, why? Why is there bigotry? Why is there racism? Why is there hatred? Why is there war? Why do people turn on each other? And then more close to home, why do you and I sometimes do things that we don't want to do, things that we know aren't right, and yet we somehow keep doing them? Maybe there's something to this idea that we are all in need of a Savior. Maybe there's something to this idea that there is a curse of sin in the world and we all need an innocent lamb. We all need the blood of an innocent lamb to cover us and save us from our sin. So they come in to seize him that night and that was Thursday. But now it's Friday and it's a day of deep regret. And, in, and remorse. And in the bright light of day, Judas wakes up in a panic. And he thinks, what have I done? What have I done to my master? What have I done to the, the man that loves me and the man that I love and I have followed? And so he grabs the 30 coins that he had meticulously counted the night before. And he goes to the chief priests. But it's too late. He sees Jesus. Jesus is gaunt and tired and haggard and exhausted from lack of sleep. And he's bound by a rope like a common criminal, and he's being dragged through the streets by soldiers to stand trial before Pontius Pilate. And in that moment, maybe the three years that Judas had spent with Jesus flashed before his eyes, and he, he remembered Jesus healing the sick, and he remembered 
Jesus raising the dead. And he remembered Jesus forgiving the unforgivable and hugging and touching the untouchable, putting his arms around lepers and 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 forgiving people who had committed all sorts of atrocities. Maybe all of this flashed before his mind. And so when Judas saw, the scripture says, that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. And he said to the chief priests and elders, he said, I've sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they said. So Judas took the money, and he just threw it into the temple, and he left. Running through the streets of Jerusalem, the regret, the guilt, the despair that is coursing through his heart and mind, Judas ran to a quiet field outside of Jerusalem. And while all the people back in Jerusalem are celebrating their freedom and celebrating God's mercy and celebrating God's love and justice, Judas climbs into a tree, cinches a strap around his neck, and leaps into the air. It's Friday. It's a day of deep regret. Max Lucado says that all of us carry with us an invisible sack through life. It's like an itchy, scratchy, invisible burlap sack. And in that sack, we put stones. And we carry these stones through life. Stones of different shapes and sizes, boulders, rocks, pebbles. And before you know it, you've got a large collection of stones in your sack. You make a poor grade, you put a stone in the sack. You make a bad decision, you put a stone in the sack. You, you mess up a relationship, you put a stone in the sack. You fail at something you're trying to achieve, you put a stone in the sack. And so the sack gets heavy with these stones, and they're stones of regret. Regret for the time that you lost your temper. Regret for the day you lost control. Regret for the moment you lost your courage. Regret for the years you lost your priorities. Regret for the hour you lost your innocence. And he says, how can we dream of the future? How can we walk into the future when we're burdened down shouldering the regrets of the past? It's Friday. It's a day of hypocrisy and injustice. The soldiers and the priests, they drag Jesus to the court of Pilate. And Pilate is the governor of Judea. He's in no mood to stamp out another rebellion. He, he's seen a lot of these would-be messiahs over the last few years. There have been many that said, I'm the messiah. I'm the Christ. And so he's seen this before. He's in no mood to put up with another rabble-rouser. And, and, and what's more, Pilate is a politician. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, but politicians kind of like to put their finger in the air, see which way the wind is blowing, and go down that path. Um, not all of them, but some. Uh, and, and, and Pilate knows that it's Caesar who butters his bread. Caesar, the emperor of Rome. He knows that it's Caesar who cuts his checks. He knows that it's Caesar who elevates his friends and, and, and disposes of his enemies. And so a, a, a sort of panic grips Pilate's heart when he hears the Jewish leaders say, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar, they say. Take him away, crucify him. And Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? 
And their, their response is, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate knows he, he's not going to touch this with a 10-foot pole. And so out of cowardice, out of political expediency, out of a callous disregard for the truth, Pilate washes his hands of the responsibility of Jesus' fate, and he hands him over to be scourged and crucified. It's Friday. It's a day of cruelty and injustice. And I don't think words can adequately describe the mockery, the scorn, the degradation that Jesus experiences on that day. After Pilate handed him over to be crucified, the, the soldiers decide to have some sadistic fun with their captive. And so they put on this mock coronation. The scripture says that uh, they, they strip him and they put a scarlet robe on him. They twist together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt down in front of him and they mock him. And they say, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him. And they take the staff and they strike him on the head again and again. The Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world was taunted and bullied and disgraced and degraded, mocked and spit upon, ridiculed and derided, yet he uttered not a word. It's Friday. It's a day of shame and humiliation. Jesus is stripped. The, th the crown of thorns is on his head. He's experienced the cat of nine tails, the scourging across his back. The soldiers lead him to a hill called the Skull. They stretch him out on a wooden beam, and they nail his hands and feet to the cross. Now, there were much more efficient ways to execute someone, uh, but they didn't want to execute someone efficiently. They wanted to execute him excruciatingly slow. In fact, that's where we get the word excruciation, excruciating from the word crucifixion. They wanted to mortify him. They wanted to humiliate him. They wanted to scandalize him before the community, and it works. It says, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. The taunts went on for hours as his body weakened and his brain began to darken. His thoughts were closing in on him and he reached that moment, that darkest moment in his life when it seemed that all hope was lost. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have a uh, great uncle that, uh, his name's Leo, Uncle Leo, and he um, grew up in southern Missouri. And he had a really good friend and a neighbor. Um, and one day they were out hunting, and his friend, my uncle's friend, thought that he had seen a groundhog out in the field. And so uh, my, my, the groundhogs that year had been tearing up the, the, the neighbor's yard. And so the neighbor said, you know what? I think I can shoot that groundhog. And so as they're walking, 
They look across the field and they see far away what, what appears to be a groundhog. And so uh, my neighbor's, uh, my uncle's friend sighted in his rifle, looked across the field and took a shot. And he turned to my uncle Leo and he said, I think I got him. And the two of them walked across the field to see if he had gotten the groundhog. And what they found was the most terrifically horrifying sight that anyone could ever imagine. What they found was not a groundhog. What they found was the slain body of uh, my Uncle Leo's son. His name was Danny. He was, he was a young kid. He was maybe 10 or 11 years old. And uh, he had been throwing rocks across the, the uh, creek. And so he was like bending down and pick up a rock and throw it and bend down, pick up a rock. And so when they were looking across the, the field, it looked like there was a groundhog coming up. And uh, the men grabbed uh, Danny and they, they ran to the hospital, but or they ran back home and then they, they called for an ambulance, but it was too late and Danny was lost. And my uncle Leo was a, a, a faithful man of God all of his life, but I, I have to imagine that there was a part of him that said, my God, my God, why, why? That's the, the depths of, of agony that, uh, that Jesus experienced on the cross. When he was hanging on the cross and he was crying out, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he was quoting a psalm, but he was also, I believe, crying out to the Father in the depths of his agony. I believe that it was real. I believe that there was, uh, I believe that Jesus was peering into the void and he wasn't seeing the light. He was just seeing darkness. He was looking over the ledge and he was just seeing emptiness and he felt completely and totally alone. And some of you have experienced that. Some of you have experienced times in your life where you are looking into the darkness, you don't see, you don't see the light. You don't see where it's going. You don't see that there's purpose. You don't see that there's meaning. You don't see that there's hope. You're looking there and you're thinking, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, when he had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. It's Friday and Jesus had failed. He had promised that he was the chosen one, the anointed one of Israel. He promised that he was the one of whom the prophets spoke, the one whom the psalmist sang about. He promised that he was the one to fulfill the prophecies. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is what he promised, and it was all a lie. There he is. He's hanging on a cross. He's broken. He's destroyed. He didn't defeat Rome. Rome strung him up like every other criminal, like every other false messiah, every other wild-eyed religious fanatic that believed that he was somehow divine, filled with delusions of grandeur. He wasn't the Christ. He was a failure. He was a phony on Friday. He was a lunatic who believed his own madness. The disciples are terrified. This man who they followed turns out that he's just another guy. He's like 
David Koresh or Charles Manson or Jim Jones. He was a fraud. It's Friday and Jesus had failed. Or so it appeared. Sometimes when we're in the midst of the Friday of our own lives, we don't get to see what's right around the corner. We don't get to experience the Sunday when it's only a Friday. But there's more to the story for those who follow Jesus. Because followers of Jesus are not Friday people. We don't live in Friday. We may experience some Fridays. We may suffer through some Fridays. Some of you are in a Friday right now. But Friday doesn't get the final say. Because for followers of Jesus, we know that Sunday is coming. There's a, uh, there's a pastor who died in 2000. He was uh, born in early 1900s. His name is S.M. Lockridge. He was the pastor of a Baptist church out in California, Orange County, California, and he was a great preacher. Old guy and just could just tear it up from the platform. Um, his name, S.M. Lockridge, actually stood for Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. No joke. And if your name's Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge, you better be able to preach or do something. Um, and he, he's a, he was a great preacher, and he preached a really famous sermon called It's Friday. And um, I can't improve upon his sermon, so I'm going to quote the excerpt from his sermon that is so powerful that I think describes not only the excruciating pain the disappointment, the bitterness that we experience, but the hope that followers of Jesus experience when they become Sunday people, not just Friday people. Lockridge says, it's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter is sleeping. Judas is betraying. But Sunday is coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling the council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday is coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter is denying. But they don't know that Sunday is coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scarlet. They crown him with thorns. But they don't know that Sunday is coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirit's burdened. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday is coming. It's Friday. The world's winning, people are sinning, and evil is grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nail my Savior's hands to the cross. They nail my Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raise him up next to criminals. It's Friday, but let me tell you something. Sunday is coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king, and the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. 
but they don't know it's only Friday. Sunday is coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death has won. Sin has conquered. And Satan is just laughing. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. A soldier stands guard. And a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It is only Friday. Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. Amen. <laughs> Praise God for S.M. Lockridge, man. The man can preach. I uh, remember that at the, at the end of my dad's life, he was, you know, sort of in hospice care at this point. He was in a comatose state. He hadn't, he hadn't resurfaced from that. Um, and there was this moment where... He sort of stirred, right? He began to kind of move around a little bit. And so the family gathered around him because we thought, uh, you know, he's going to come out of this coma and maybe he's going to say something powerful and, and emotional and like pr drop some pearls of wisdom on us, right? Um, my sister had been playing a CD from a worship leader that my dad liked, a guy named Terry Clark. And my sister thought, you know, my dad's going to love this worship, you know, music. And so while he's in this comatose state, my my sister put the music on and she just left it on loop like on repeat over and over and over for three days <laughs> three days uh this song just kept going over and over you know my dad was a was a sunday person he knew that in the depths of his friday that he was going to see a sunday and so even when he was sick and going down he he maintained a joy he maintained a sense of humor and so this moment when we all gather around his bed He's waking up, and we think Dad's going to say something deep. He opens his eyes. He looks over at the CD player. He lifts his hand like a gun and curls it like this, and he goes, <laughs> and then he went back into the comb. It's pretty awesome. But he knew that he's going through the Friday, and he's just passing through this Friday. But he's about to experience Sunday. He's about to see what new life is really like. He's about to face with his face to face with his Savior, with his Lord. It's no coincidence that while the Passover was being celebrated in Jerusalem, while lambs were being slaughtered in Jerusalem, as they were every Passover, and people were celebrating. By virtue of the slaughter of these lambs, they were remembering and commemorating God's freeing them out of, his, out of Egypt by the blood of the lamb. It's no coincidence that while that was happening in the temple, outside of the city gates, the Lamb of God was giving his life and shedding his blood so that when we allow it to be put on the doorposts of our heart, we're, we're freed from bondage. We're freed from slavery. We are set free. We are raised into newness of life. So if it's Friday in your life today, I want to just say to you, be strong and be of good cheer. Because Sunday's coming.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for for dying on the cross for us, for shedding your blood for us, for moving us in such powerful and deep ways, for knowing, for giving your life for us, for, for seeing the things that we've seen, for taking on the sins that we've done, for experiencing the kind of suffering and beyond that any of us could ever imagine. Thank you, God, for for sending your son to be here and to be like us so that we can be close to you. We are so grateful to you. We are so grateful for the sacrifice that Jesus made. Lord Jesus, thank you for suffering for us. Thank you for looking into the abyss. Thank you for seeing the kind of uh, sin that the world is experiencing and, and, and willfully giving yourself as the Lamb of God. We praise you. We thank you. We lift you up today. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys are getting as emotional as I am out there.